0: You're listening to 340B Unscripted.
1: Hey everyone! Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Nehupe. Hey Rob, how's it going?
2: Greg, I'm doing well. Just back from ASHP, ready to record this, uh, our last podcast for the year, and and of course we got our extra team member here today, Matt Parker.
1: Hey guys, thanks for having me. I said this before when you were on. And I'll say it again. When we started this, you said I'm I'm never gonna get in front of the camera or on the mic for this. I'm all gonna be on uh, on the back end doing the engineering stuff and here we we've got you two times now so two times, that's right. thanks
2: yeah and we do have to thank matt um for those again that don't know matt's actually the wizard behind the curtains that puts our podcast together uh, he has he has extra skill sets aside from being a great pharmacist and a great leader and running our optimization and pharmacy support services division he's he's a podcast podcast pro so really really glad to have um, Matt not only on the team and helping us but on, on this call to help us uh, close out the year with our final podcast of 2022
1: yeah so I think for for our last discussion of this year I think we kicked around the idea of doing a top 10 as far as developments in the 340b space for for the year and talk about those those topics the impact that they have on covered entities immediately and what the impact of those things might be in the future and we we talked about trying to rank order them but i think it's really hard to do you know a lot of news as it relates to 340B this year, some good, some bad, um, all really important. So I, I thought it was really difficult to to kind of put these things in in a top 10 from 1 to 10 in terms of order of importance. So maybe we go through them in no particular order. How's that sound?
2: I agree because everyone's order is probably a little different for, for which is more important. So I so guess a good point. Top 10 developments in 340B in no particular order.
1: All right. Great. Well, let's start with uh, a big one, a big win for for covered entities. The first topic that we're going to address is um, back in June, Supreme Court issued a unanimous ruling overturning the OPPS uh, payment cuts that were made for 340B hospitals for Part B drugs back in 2018, uh, on the basis that you know HHS, you know, they failed to follow proper procedures in terms of surveying hospital costs prior to changing their rates. Right now, we stand at, at a point where CMS has reinstated, reinstated the previous rate of ASP plus six um, to the 2023 rule that goes live in January. Regional uh, MACs are, are starting to work through repayments and claims reprocessing for 2022. So what do you guys think? Big win
2: for, for covered entities, right? Huge win. Huge win. And as a reminder, you know, the um, CMS is is having the MACs really increase that reimbursement to ASP plus 6% as of, I think, September 28th. Some, correct me if I'm wrong, just doing that based on memory. And and everything prior to that, like you mentioned, is based what the regional max um, processes are. We haven't heard a lot of news since that broke. And so as a reminder, I guess I guess one thing I'd like to do is if there's any um, kind of talking points or action items for you as covered entities that are listening, uh, one here would be to make sure you're um, – Communicating with your regional MAC to identify how they're going to, how they want you to do the repayments for the rest of uh, 2022 uh, prior to September 28th. And of course, we're all still waiting for 2023 to find out how those previous years, uh, 2018 through 2021, uh, is going to be repaid. So, still some information to find out and a little bit of action items for you as covered entities, but super excited. I do think it's going to be a big win, and especially right now when health systems are short on cash. So, um, lots running in the red, and hopefully, this will help. Yeah, so when when this news broke at the end of the, I guess in the fall, um,
1: you know, the, the biggest question that covered entities were reaching out with is, hey, can we suspend TV modifiers? And CMS is still requiring those for 2023. Do either of you have a prediction or any thoughts as to why CMS is continuing to have 340B covered entities use those modifiers and what that might mean in the future? Matt, I'll start with you. What, what are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, I I think we're definitely not done seeing cuts uh, to reimbursement around 340B. And so I think the modifiers are staying in place um, for data gathering purposes. Obviously, that's going to give CMS a lot more information than what they have. And really, if you go back to the the Supreme Court decision, we talked about it on the podcast here. It was uh, turned down uh, basically because of procedural issues, right? It was the way they went about applying those cuts is is what actually – uh, was proved uh, not to be lawful. And so it didn't mean that there can't be a cut at all. It's just the way they have to approach it. So I definitely think that there'll be uh, likely some studies that are done um, as we get into 2023, uh, looking at uh, the actual scope of the 340 b program, the amount of savings, um, and, and then we may see more information about future cuts. Uh, but for right now, everyone can breathe a, a sigh of relief that those uh, reimbursement rates have been re- reinstated. And uh, we'll just wait to see what happens as we move into OPPS for 2024, which is a year away.
1: Yeah, so this is probably going to be in our top 10 next year, too, I'm guessing. You know, we've got (laughs) a little little bit of immediate relief now, but a little bit of a cliffhanger in terms of, you know, how covered entities get, get that money back from 2018, 2019, and what those modifiers mean in terms of maybe a potential hospital cost survey issued by HHS in the future. All right. Number two. So again, this really isn't a new development. This is an ongoing issue that uh, is, are, uh, all the covered entities that we're working with are struggling with. We have, we've got manufacturers continuing to restrict access to 340B price drugs through contract pharmacy channels. I think we're up to 18 different manufacturers right now that have implemented a variety of different restrictions. You know, most of those uh, manufacturers are working with Second Sight, who has that data collection platform, 340B ESP. Um, I've got a couple of court cases, I think three three federal court cases that are pending that might determine the legality of these restrictions. Um, you know, this time last year, the covered entities that we were working with, nobody was uploading data to 340B ESP to reinstate 340B pricing. That's a different, you know, we're, we're at a different place today, though, um, based on all the additional manufacturers this year. Matt, what, what have you guys been hearing from the clients that you've been working with and the covered entities you, you've helped manage this 340B ESP stuff?
0: Yeah, the, the first thing is that this has just been a little bit of an overwhelming year. I went back and tried to, to count how many different notifications were given last year, and I found about 13 of those. Um, that's not all uh, initial you know, notification that they were going to restrict contract pharmacy services. Some were changing their parameters, uh, whether it was the, the time window, of which um, you can do your eligible dispenses. Um, but that's a lot of information uh, to come out. You're looking at, you know, that's roughly one a month if you average it out. Of something changing in the program. And so um, it was a little overwhelming for our covered entities uh, here in 2022. Um, The other thing that uh, that we've been seeing is we've had a lot of our clients we're working with reach out to us for um, some degree of assistance. And that really ranges from just talking through the general process and making sure they understand it all the way up to us, actually uh, rolling our sleeves up and helping them with that process. But interestingly enough, we've got some data back on several of our clients that, you know, this is and I'm kind of preaching to the choir here, this is a multi-million dollar impact for most covered entities. Um, the last uh, two that we worked on um, within just a few months of getting pricing restored and uh, having the claims uh, become eligible going through, we saw 1.5 million, $2 million of benefit within just a matter of a couple months. So significant numbers uh, for covered entities. What I would say is, you know, if you're listening and you haven't, uh, done a quick ROI calculation, um, you probably need to do it. I mean, and, and look at that value. Every time uh, we get another notification, that value just keeps going up. And uh, we believe there's probably a tipping point at some point where um, financially you just have to jump in and be in the program because of the financial burden. So uh, we'll look to see what happens in, in uh, 2023. I'll go ahead and, and mention this. We do have one silver lining. Uh, we received notification this week that. Novo Nordisk is actually going to allow uh, for uh, restoration of 340 uh, 340 price net contract pharmacies uh, through the ESP process prior 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 to that notification they were not allowing that um, and so that's a, a good thing so there's even potential for a little bit more savings to come back to your program um, if you choose to participate in the uh, ESP program. What what it I have
1: a question for you Robin in a second but just what we were saying now about Novo Nordisk what did like just an amazing kind of Like I'm thinking about this now, like we're celebrating the fact that Nova Nordisk is allowing covered entities to upload data into 340 BSP. I mean, it's just that that's where we're at, though, right now. I mean, this is having such a tremendous negative financial impact. You know, we're we're, we're celebrating these these, you know, developments, even though that really isn't what we feel is what is lawful and what should be done to help uh, covered entities kind of navigate and get out of this this issue of restricted access.
2: Well, I got to tell you, yeah. So my comment was gonna be, yeah. So Novolog's back on the menu, and and if I'm Nova, you sort of had to do that, right? Your your biggest competitor in the rapid acting insulin, Eli Lilly and Humalog, is allowing uh, covered entities or are allowing covered entities to send data so they can get Humalog back on the menu. Well, you know, for some covered entities, I said, well, if if that's a big issue on that insulin side, and you have diabetes clinics or a lot of family practice and a lot of insulin going through. You may want to think about trying to adjust your formulary through P and T. Now, now, granted, some of this is insurance-based, but some of your, um, you know, Medicare, for instance, they're going to cover both. So, um, you know, where possible, I, I recommend switching to Humalog. So, if I'm Novo, I'm looking at this and saying, you know what? If I want to be on par with my largest competitor, Eli Lilly, I, you kind of have to. So, but I agree because because in in commercial space, we don't have a, sometimes we don't have a choice. Sometimes Novo is the preferred product or the tier one product, and not Humalog, and so. Uh, not much you can do to switch there so i think that was a big deal um i do want to uh, give a shout out to uh, one of uh, one of our directors on Matt's team uh, that's Riley Prots um, for n- the main reason that I want to say his name right, because when we had him on the podcast earlier in the year, I said his name. I don't know how many times. If you remember, I read his bio um, and no one told me I said his name wrong, including Riley. And it's it's pro. It's not pro. It's just want to put that out there. Correction for the second time. Apologize on air one more time to end the year for Riley. But Riley um, is one. he's he's um, he leads a referral capture as well. One of the things he does. And as he was doing that, he developed a service, just so everyone knows, around helping people with their ESP program. Because as we got into it, we realized how much time it takes, not just uploading the data. We thought uploading the data was going to be the big deal. That's actually not the big deal. It does take time, especially if if you have a lot of contract pharmacies. But it's managing once you upload data, right? All of your pharmacies, all of these NDCs, do you have pricing back? Because sometimes you don't. You have to communicate to the manufacturer, the wholesaler, to ESP very time consuming. You have to make sure that you're dedicating some time and FTE resource to do that. And if you don't have that, um, you can reach out to us. We have some resources there through uh, Riley's team and, and Riley, who's actually helping manage that for covered entities who don't have the time to do it. Because if you don't do that part well, then you sending data isn't going to result in that maximal savings that you could potentially have. So you do have to kind of watch that quite a bit. So I want to give, again, a shout out to Riley Proats.
0: Yeah, Rob, that's a great uh, plug there. That first, say, one to three months from when you decide to submit data and start submitting data, uh, it is hot and heavy during that time period that you really have to be on top of communication with the manufacturers, follow up with ESP, uh, looking at your wholesaler, checking to see did pricing get reinstored. Uh, There's just a ton of work that needs to be done. After that period, the workload does go down. Um, But that project management uh, that you need to do kind of up front and keeping track of all the different manufacturers and all the different price points, um, it's a heavy lift. And so uh, that's where we're able to come in and and help um, our clients uh, get through that tough period there uh, and restore the pricing
1: because yeah, none of that work really if impacts it or has anything to do with compliance so you've got to keep the lights on while you're while you're working through the ESP stuff and you know it's right. I think it's been it's been great where we've been able to help covered entities kind of take the the burden of managing the data uh, transactions in 340b ESP and let them focus on the real work of uh, optimizing and, and managing 340b program operations. Rob, what are your thoughts about these uh, pending court cases? The conjecture has been that there's probably going to be a split in terms of decisions, maybe get es- es- it gets escalated to Supreme Court. What, what do you, what's your take on how this shakes out in the future?
2: I, I think that's the case, at least the signs from the uh, the district court so far, is some are sort of leaning towards HERSA or HHS, some are leaning towards the manufacturers. And as a reminder for everyone, just like Greg just said, if the lower courts don't have a consensus, then that's when it goes up to the Supreme Court. So more than likely, I do agree that we'll likely have uh, this case eventually get to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court will make a decision. Um, and so until then, I, I think we're kind of in this limbo where it is kind of send data or um, to get some of that pricing back or, or hold out if you can, I guess. Um, but uh, you know, the only positive thing I can say so far is we haven't had a manufacturer jump in recently. Um, But, you know, after a period of time, I am worried that maybe some are looking at the beginning of the year. Are we going to get a notice soon? I haven't heard anything from the grapevine yet, but um, I'm kind of kind of paying attention, feeling like we might hear from one or two. And I guess we'll know at the beginning of the year if uh, my worry was right or if it was wrong.
1: All right. Let's move on to another topic. Again, uh, a bit of an adversarial topic for some of our 340B covered entities. Um, Many of these manufacturers, same as those that have implemented uh, contract pharmacy restrictions, we've seen a number of manufacturers and voluntary 340B pricing on orphan drugs for those covered entities that are subject to orphan drug exclusion. So that's like your rural referral center hospitals, sole community hospitals, critical access covered entities. Um, I mean, it's, it's leaving a big, you know, you know, uh, gap in uh, drug expense budget for many of the covered entities, Matt, what, what have you heard from from clients that you've been working with that are struggling with the orphan drug um, pricing loss?
0: Yeah, so I've been keeping track of this. Um, so up to today's date, we've got four manufacturers uh, that have removed pricing. In 2022 along, there was three. So Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, and GSK uh, removed voluntary pricing. Um, and if you think about for those covered entity types that you mentioned there, the the Rural Referral Center, Soul Community Critical Access Hospital, uh, they've had a double hit uh, because they've got the ESP, you know, uh, uh, the contract pharmacy uh, cuts that we just talked about, um, and then the orphan drug cut on top of that. So they're seeing both cuts in their mixed-use space and in the contract pharmacy universe. Um, And so it's been really challenging for them. Uh, For for many of the covered entities that we worked with, um, you know, if they have an infusion uh, center or an area that's doing some outpatient infusion, Uh, those orphan uh, 340B-like pricing drugs was really sustaining their program, um, the savings from that, and that's been taken away. So definitely been a tough uh, financial impact for uh, those covered entities. And uh, kind of as as Rob alluded to with ESP, I'm I'm curious of what 2023 is going to bring. I'm kind of concerned that there'll probably be at least uh, one or two more announcements of others doing uh, similar moves. But uh, the three from this year were, were big headers um, with a lot of drug drug spend impact for uh, covered entities. Um, w- w-
1: yeah, Rob, yeah, In terms of orphan drug exclusion, is that rulemaking? You, do we think we get some, you know, relief from that through rulemaking with HRSA, or does Congress have to go back and, and adjust the statute to account for that?
2: I think one of either one of those options uh, could work. Uh, you know, we know HRSA wanted to create rules and clarifying rules around this for orphans only for their indication, yeah. um, being non-eligible for 340B. And of course, uh, f- the pharmaceutical manufacturers won those lawsuits because the plain language of the statute d- didn't really give those outs. And so, um, yeah, I think Hersa getting rulemaking authority or legislation specifically uh, detailing when the orphan drug exclusion applies could resolve that. Um, but, but again, that we, Not looking promising, mixed mixed Congress, um, you know, who knows if if we'll see HRSA getting that type of authority or not, Um, waiting to see. And, of course, that's a double-edged sword, as we always talk about, you know, what else would HRSA kind of tighten up or clarify likely patient definition and some other areas. And so so you might win in one area, lose in another. the only thing I you know I think for a short term recommendation and, and probably long term to be honest, biosimilars are, are coming hard and fast for a lot of these drugs that do have these orphan indications so if you're a, if you're a covered entity subject to the orphan drug exclusion, especially if you have an infusion and you've taken a pretty big hit due to these orphan drugs and the manufacturers who were providing pricing and aren't and then of course all the other ones like the Genentech drugs, Genentech's always kind of excluded them. Um, good time to start looking at the the biosimilars coming out you know what can you do in the biosimilar space put a little attention and time uh to that to see where you can shift some volume to biosimilars where you will get 340b pricing um and and be able to uh, increase your savings compared to where you had before so that's that's our best recommendation for the orphan drug removals at this time
1: yeah yeah i i think we've talked about that a few times in previous episodes really if if you if you're a hospital or a health system that has a you know, formulary management process, you, you really need to make sure the 340B team's engaged because it's decision points around product selection um, that could be impacted most significantly by the different price points and availability of 340B pricing, depending on whether it's an innovator product, originator product, or, uh, or a biosimilar. So you got to make sure you, you as the 340B subject matter expert at your facility is in the room when p and is analyzing these potential decisions. All right, next uh, topic. Um, spent a lot, about, a lot of time talking about this in the, in the summer. This is really an impetus for us to have a lot of discussion around patient definition. Um, this is a Genesis uh, healthcare lawsuit. Um, Genesis is an FQHC based out of South Carolina back in 2018. Um, they they uh, were subject to a hearse audit. They had audit findings attributed to their failure to adhere to the uh, 1996 patient definition guidance Genesis sued HRSA. HRSA vacated the audit. Um, uh, Genesis was initially temporarily suspended from the program. They got reinstated. Uh, the federal court was going to dismiss the case, but Genesis appealed and said, hey, look, HRSA hasn't changed their patient definition guidance. We could be subject to an audit for the same standards in the future. We need the court to make a ruling on whether or not this patient definition guidance um, is uh, in play. That case is expected to be heard in August of uh, 2023 now. So lots of chatter around patient definition coming from uh, the ruling from this particular court case. Rob, share some thoughts around the Genesis piece.
2: You're muted, Rob.
1: (laughs) That's the first time that's happened on this podcast.
2: (laughs) Oh, my heck. Of course, it's on our last one of the year. Uh, yeah, this this uh, particular um, topic is actually near and dear to my heart because it was our first main episode on the podcast. If you remember, it was episode one. We talked about expansion of patient definition. And, um, you know, I, we've been talking to a lot of clients about this. And, and I do, you know, and some are holding out for August of 2023 to see what happens with the Genesis law cases. That's when it comes up. So less than a year away. But at the same time, you know, while covered entities are struggling with savings, it does appear to be at least one strategy or opportunity to look at your current program and say, okay, are there areas where the what Genesis is arguing and an expanded patient definition might make sense? And, and we are starting to see that. And we see that with Harsa audits as well. And you know, our our goal in 2023 is to keep people apprised of how Hearse is auditing regarding diversion and, and patient definition. And if they're holding Pat with this kind of more, we're only enforcing statute. Um, which would be kind of in line with Genesis thought process, or are they going to tighten up in twenty twenty three? So, you know, definitely more more to be seen in twenty twenty three. And and of course, I think a couple covered entities that I spoke with said, you know, I think we're gonna hold out for August, see what happens there. And, um, and of course we have other covered entities saying, Hey, look, we're looking for opportunities now. And so using a little bit of the expanded patient definition, very similar to what Genesis is arguing about when you're the primary care provider, that prescription should qualify because you, you, you're responsible sort of for all those prescriptions. So interesting law case, very interesting development and where covered entities are taking it. And, um, and again, something, if you're interested in reach out to us, we can provide some kind of background and, and, and some guidance on that, um. If if you're looking at ways you can improve your your savings to to keep your doors open,
1: yeah, I mean you, when you look at the HRSA program integrity page and you track or trend diversion findings from you know er, earlier in the decade, so 2016, 2017, you're you're seeing probably a 50% rate of f- diversion findings in audits with findings. That's down to single digit percentages right now. We're talking maybe less than five percent of all audits with findings. Have some type of diversion finding. So, HRSA clearly has changed their enforcement capacity around um, diversion findings. Not that they maybe um, intend to disband or not, you know, it, you know, not advocate or or enforce the patient definition guidance. They just have taken a very more relaxed approach, I think, in assessing diversion for a lot of these types of scenarios. So, yeah, definitely hearing a lot from from covered entities around things like continuum of care and evaluating how below the line clinics are fitting into their 340B program operations. So lots of different variables out there and really important to pay attention to what happens with this particular
2: lawsuit. All right. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting for sure.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> Next topic, Inflation Reduction Act. So August of this year. Um, It was all over the news. Uh, Inflation Reduction Act was passed. There's provisions in that bill that allow CMS to negotiate directly with manufacturers for pricing of drugs to uh, Medicare beneficiaries. Um, There's going to be inflation rebate penalties assessed uh, starting next year in 2026. Uh, Medicare is going to start negotiating with certain manufacturers on Part D drugs, and that will eventually scale into Part B drugs. Um, you know, we may see a decrease in the average uh, 340B discount or an increase in the um, the ceiling price next year because of the inflation rebate penalties. Uh, we're going to see a fourth price point once Medicare has this maximum fair price um, uh, negotiated with manufacturers. Uh, not entirely sure how this is going to impact 340B covered entities. Matt, what, what are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, I think this one's one to watch, and um, we, we did an entire episode on that. So if, if folks would like to hear more, I'd point you to go back to that episode to to hear a full conversation. But uh, really, uh, we've got a couple years before we start seeing the impacts that may be coming to the 340B program with that fourth price point and the potential of changing margins. And so uh, this is just one I say is one to watch. we got to keep our eyes on it, see what happens. Um, you know, there's a lot of time between now and 2026, uh, there's a lot that can happen from a legal uh standpoint, and even you know new congresses coming in, things like that that can can shift this so um i'm a I'm a little uh, bit uh, of the opinion that we've gotta just see what happens with this, and I'm not certain that it'll stay the way that it currently is in its present language and there there could be some changes that come um before it actually goes into effect,
1: yeah, I mean we don't even have regulations proposed yet by federal government on how this is going to be implemented so probably something to put in the parking lot and watch in the future.
2: Rob, do you agree? I agree. I agree. Now, I, I will say that the one thing that uh, we don't know what the impact is going to be is on the uh, inflation penalty. It's sort of similar to how our penny pricing penalty works, except that, the, that Medicare or the government gets a rebate back for any price price increases greater than inflation so that's the one impact i think um you know at least i think there will be an in- impact we just don't know how big it is in 2023 because that's one of the parts of the ira or the inflation reduction act that actually kicks in in 2023 based on 2021 data so that's you know if i'm a manufacturer i'm not super happy about that because they weren't able to make decisions in 2021 knowing this is coming so um, that, that one's a little tough, but we'll see, you know, how that impacts manufacturers raising prices in the future, which might impact how many drugs we have in a penny pricing penalty. And I guess relate not related to the IRA, but related to the fact we're in hyperinflation right now. We might also see some manufacturers crawl out of the penny pricing penalty inflation hole um, because we're having you know pretty high inflation today. So so we'll see what that looks like come 2023 um, with penny pricing if we lose any manufacturers and if less actually join that basket of. Uh, deep discounts for 340B. I'm hoping that's not the case, but but I have a feeling that that if I'm a manufacturer, I'm going to be watching uh, my in, increased prices uh, more than I have in the past, because now there's two things that I'm going to have to pay that's going to cost me if I go too high above CPIU.
1: What, what do you guys think as far as metrics to monitor this? What, what's a good source of information? How, do you, how, how are we going to know what the impact of the inflation rebate penalties has been on ceiling price?
2: Yeah, I've been thinking about that. I, I almost think it's you, you almost have to look at well, how many drugs do we have in the penny pricing category today? In fact, we've never done this, Matt. Um, maybe we should look at some data that we have to see, how, you know, over time how many have been in there, so we can see the trend of um, are we having more or less over time. It would Be nice to go back and see if we could identify, you know, for the last five years or three years at least, um, and and just watch that on a quarterly basis how many are in there and then to see how many come out because of inflation and then also how many don't enter um, because of the IRA and the penny pricing penny at the same time. So uh, that'd actually be fun. This first time I thought about it because you said it, uh, but maybe something we can look at if we have the data um, that we can report back.
1: Yeah. Good. All right. Moving on. So the next topic, I think we did have an episode specifically about this. So you can look back at the um, uh, previous episodes, but, um, 340B hitting the mainstream media. New York Times published a series of articles over the summer uh, entitled it Patients Before Profits, and they talked and focused on different healthcare organizations that are you know, um, focusing on the bottom line as opposed to um, you know optimizing healthcare for for their patients. And one of those articles focused on 340B and talked about uh, 340B covered entity out of uh, Richmond, Virginia, Richmond Community Hospital, part of the Bon Secours Mercy Health System. Um, some suggestions in the article that 340B savings from that covered entity was being allocated for use in other areas of the um, health system, including maybe in the development of healthcare services in more affluent uh, communities. No implications of 340B noncompliance in that article, but it really did cast uh, an unfavorable light on um, that particular health system as well as 3 covered 3 340B covered entities at large. And when we talked about it, underscores the importance of maintaining, you know, stewardship around your 340B program, putting together an impact profile to talk about how your 340B program participation helps your community. Um, either of you, any, any thoughts for, from that article?
0: Yeah, I, I think that um, messaging is key here. Uh, and w- what we find is that those who are counter to the 340B program, uh, they've got a pretty good messaging machine, right? They they know how to articulate uh, counter points to the 340B program. And I think for those of us who are on the pro 340B side, uh, on the support covered entities and the and the work that the program does uh, to support our patients, that we need to kind of get behind our own messaging machine uh, and start putting out. Uh, more information regarding the benefits of the program. I know for those listening, that, that's probably just one more thing on your list to do, is to say, wow, I don't have time to, to write a white paper or to to write an op-ed or anything like that. But I think it's really important that we've got to be a little bit more uh, proactive from a 340B community and tell our story, tell the, the benefits uh, that the, the program is doing, so that we can hopefully change the narrative a little bit. Uh, right now, most of the narrative around the 340B program seems to be, with a negative slant, and so I'd like to see us change that. Um, now, again, that takes time, uh, but when you, you're looking at your 340B program, you know the value that program has to your organization, and it doesn't take a whole lot of time to put some effort into, you know, writing something to maybe your your congressman or writing something to your local media outlet or if you have an opportunity to present um, at a, a, a meeting uh, to do that, or if you'd like to come on this podcast and share your story Uh, Those are all good avenues to kind of change the message that's out there about the 340B program. I think that's needed right now.
1: Good. Yeah. So the the next topic that I want to address with you guys, I think it, it dovetails off of you know, maybe some of the sentiments from the New York Times article. You know, I think people read an article like that and they say the 340B program needs reform. Well, we've seen um, in the grantee community space, um, you know, we've got uh, one particular um, advocacy group um, that represents uh, FQHCs and other grantee programs um, starting to campaign to propose Congress establish a new law around a drug Discount pricing program 340C, so an alternative or essentially a you know maybe a a variance to the uh, the 340B program that would apply just to health centers and other grantee covered entities, maybe some small hospital programs. And the the basis for them proposing this 340C uh, legislation is that you know. Clearly, 340B program needs reform, but we don't want health centers and other small grantees to be sweeped into the overhaul that's likely coming for the 340B program. This is a bit of a break from tradition. You know, Most 340B covered entities band together. They rally together when it comes time to advocate for 340B protections. This essentially would sever grantees and other small um, participating covered entities from hospitals in terms of advocating for the 340B program. Rob, what, do you, what are your thoughts uh, initially on um, the the value of of uh, such a
2: proposal. Yeah, what you just mentioned about the covered entities normally banding together—that's my biggest concern. You're you're splitting up our covered entities, and I think you lose a little bit of the momentum and the the and, you know the the ability for the covered entities to pull their resources and and work together together to keep the program intact. And so that's my biggest concern. Um, I think it becomes a distraction, to be honest. Um, but you know, I do want to highlight that um, the organization doing it, because right when we think co- uh, community health centers, or FQHCs, we sort of think of NAC. And NACs come out and said, "Hey, this isn't us. We're not. We're not the ones putting this forward." So NACs come out and said that. I think Ryan, the Ryan Whites, have come out and said, "Hey, we're also not in favor of this." So even on the grantee side, there's not consensus. And So my feeling this isn't something that's going to get enough traction. I mean, HRSA can't even get rulemaking authority for the current program. I don't see how we're going to get an entirely new program related to 340B or or almost identical to 340B, but specific to community health centers and grantees. Um, So I kind of feel this is sort of a distraction. Or or maybe it's just optics for the community health centers, you know, a mechanism to, you know, even if it doesn't happen, but it's a way for them to show, hey, not all cover entities are the same as community health centers. We already have a lot of visibility required right That's one of the knocks on hospitals is there isn't this visibility of what occurs with the three forty b savings, albeit if you look at the intent and how much charity care hospitals, especially not for profit and government hospitals are already providing, it's significant um and so I think that's part of the reason there's not a requirement, but grantees because they have grants already have to show and track what they're where those grantee dollars are going. And for many grantees, the 340B program savings is included in those grantee savings because it's the grant that helped them get that 340B status. And so those dollars have to be tracked and you have to use it for appropriate reasons. And so I think this is maybe a, a, a pulpit for those community health centers to be able to share, hey, this is what we're already doing. Here's why we want to do this. So even if the 340C doesn't come through, um, at least they were to get their message out that, hey, don't harm us in the process. Um, maybe that's the, the best outlook that, that I can see, but I, I don't see it going through personally. But again, I guess time will tell. And we've I've officially put it in out there verbally on our podcast. And so you know, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But but I think that's that's where it's going to go. That's a good take, Rob.
1: All right, next item on our list: um, HRSA audits always a focus uh, on our compliance side. Covered entities always, you know, we're always advocating that covered entities maintain. HRSA audit readiness at any point in time. Just got a bunch of covered entities that got HRSA audit notices for the first quarter of 2023. So HRSA is continuing to evaluate the integrity of how 340B covered entities are managing their, their program operations. Um, this year, we saw hersa publish an updated data request list for FY23. So some additional data elements added to the uh, the data request list during the hersa audit process, including... Um, Formally requesting some external audit uh, documentation. So making sure if you've got contract pharmacy in your 340B program, you need to provide proof of external audits having been performed um, for for the year. Uh, more detail defining purchasing account configurations, contract pharmacy networks, and there was one specific. Um, new requirement that I wanted to ask you guys about. It's the provision of ownership documentation for in-house pharmacies. So new section on the data request list. If you're dispensing 340B drugs um, far, by, through pharmacies that are owned by the covered entity and are not contract pharmacies, you need to provide a list and verify ownership of those um, of those pharmacies. Matt, what, what do you think HRSA is looking for by asking covered entities to provide that?
0: Yeah, well, I actually was talking to um, a covered entity that was audited many years ago, and their statement was, um, "It seems that Hearst is getting more advanced," and I think that's really that is that you know, if any of you were audited back in the early days, uh, so I went through an audit all the way back in like 2012, um, it was fairly uh, a rudimentary audit. Uh, You know, you went through a couple samples, there wasn't a whole lot of digging into documentation, but each year uh, they're getting a little bit more progressive. So this this is obviously something that is uh, just them becoming a little bit more savvier and digging a little bit deeper. Um, I do think that probably one of the main reasons this is coming about right now is because of what's happening with the contract pharmacy limitations. Um, You know, a lot of covered entities are looking at strategies to, you know, bring those pharmacies in-house or restructure your retail division such that you can maximize the benefit of the the 340B program. And so um, I think it's more of a safeguard from HRSA just to say, hey, we need to be keeping an eye on this to to make sure that no one's kind of cutting a corner in order to uh, to, to skirt those requirements.
1: Rob, anything to add to that?
2: Yeah, I, I agree with Matt on this one that, um, you know, we've we've heard, um, I, I don't know of any of our clients that have done it, but I've heard it's kind of related to, you know, there's a, the um, the health system owned exceptions, for instance. And so some covered entities within a health system might say it's all health system owned. We're all going to have it be our in-house retail pharmacy so they don't have to send data or, or they don't have to, you know, they, they can have it just qualify amongst the rest of their in-house retails. And so they can't do a single pharmacy exception for the ESP program. And so I, I think because of that, it, there's some question, of are these really in-house retails or should you have a contract pharmacy relationship? Because, and as a reminder for um, those, um, only the pharmacy, if it's owned by the hospital, the specific covered entity, should it be an in-house retail pharmacy? If it's owned by a different business unit of the health system or a different hospital or as from the health system entirely, then it should be a contract pharmacy. So and it, so you still list it as a contract pharmacy. And if you're using the health system exception, um, if a manufacturer is allowing it, it's still a contract pharmacy. You, you're just asking for the exception. They're not saying you should list it as an in-house retail pharmacy. So um, I agree. My guess is that's probably where it's stemming from um, among just probably something they want to look at and say, hey, we haven't really focused on confirming things are in-house retail, they're sort of taking the covered entity's word for it. A couple of different ways you show that, you know, I always like to use the cost report as one of the mechanism or the license of the pharmacy and that type of thing. So um, definitely something if you haven't, or you haven't really looked at what, what is, or what are your documentation during a HERSA audit to prove your in-house retail pharmacy is really yours, something you want to start compiling um, maybe over the holiday break when it slows down and start looking at making sure it's in your 340B documents in case you do get audited by HERSA. Yeah,
1: I, I agree with that. It's something that you need to put together today. You can see on Hearst's website the the actual requirement for the in-house pharmacy ownership documentations. You can start staging that now. If you don't get it get to it the beginning part of twenty twenty three, I I really think this is something covered entities need to look at. And prep for recertification. This looks like a topic that could hit um, covered entities in the form of desk audits that are performed during the uh, the annual recertification. So you want to make sure you have your your ducks in a row around your your shipping addresses uh, come uh, come August September next year. All right. Next next topic, um, again, kind of uh, around hearse uh, operations, uh, the administrative dispute resolution um, process. So in November, so just this past month, um, Hearst has proposed some new rules around uh, uh, significant changes to the ADR process, which you know, as we know, in, is intended for. Um, covered entities and manufacturers to use in resolving disputes when good faith efforts um, fail. So the proposed role is looking at a couple of different things. It's defining the qualifying criteria for disputes. Um, it's establishing a more administrative-like process as opposed to like a trial-like um, proceeding. And it also establishes a um, uh, new standards for how the ADR panel members are selected. And that's, again, being proposed off of a roster of OPA uh, staff members. Um, the, the rule is uh, pending comments. I think comments are due by the end of January of next year. Um, Matt or Rob, either of you have any thoughts, right, or, or comments around what's being proposed?
0: No, I just say it uh, looks like this actually may occur. Um, you know, we've been waiting for um, an ADR process to be clearly defined and and have that all laid out uh, for quite some time now. And so with this going forth uh, for public comment, it looks like we've got a good chance of this actually going in and being official as we roll into uh, 2023. So um, kind of anxious to see what the final version looks like. A lot of times there's, you know, changes, significant changes that can occur from the initial uh, comment um, uh, proposal and then the final document. So uh, kind of a wait, wait and see uh, what we get.
2: Yeah. And, and as a reminder, this has been ADR should have happened years ago, right? This is one area HRSA does have rulemaking authority for. Yeah. Um, and and even it's been commented previously when HERSA asked for rulemaking authority where some of the Congress um, or Senator, uh, House of Rep- Representatives have kind of made the comment, hey, you've got rulemaking authority in three areas. You haven't fully used that yet. So I think this is actually important for HERSA to show that, hey, you've given us rulemaking authority and we're putting forth the areas that you've already given us responsibility for rules in. Get that all done and, and maybe that helps them get rulemaking authority in the future. The one part in here that I think is, is critical and it part probably related to the manufacturers, right? A lot of covered entities, you know, by counsel from, from various groups, have been submitting ADRs on the manufacturer and contract pharmacy issue. But in here it does talk about um, that it cannot be an issue that's pending in federal court. So that helps clarify: hey, anything where there's a court case going on, just, just hold off on the ADRs, don't inundate um three hersa uh, with these adrs because they can't do anything with it if there's a court case pending so i think that's an important component and probably probably good information if if you're wondering hey do i should i start submitting things on these manufacturers uh, probably not if this is the way it's going to go because um you're gonna, we're going to have to wait for all those court cases to end
1: yeah so we're talking patient definition based on the, the genesis lawsuit uh, contract pharmacy restrictions there's three federal court cases what about orphan drug is it, is it, is that something that could potentially fall in the scope of an ADR, or is is that really kind of said and done at this point?
2: At, at this point, I, because the federal courts have ruled that um, HRSA couldn't clarify that orphans are only for uh, when the drug's used for its orphan designation or indication, my guess is that there's nothing to really argue about. Orphans are considered non-covered elevation drugs for those affected covered entities. So uh, unless there was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure someone could come up with some valid reason to try, but but it feels like to me that's not something we'd probably win. But but, but I, I'm not an attorney. So, uh, you know, if someone has a good case for that, for an ADR, I guess they say it's not a case, but a good reason um, to try and go after an ADR for it, they possibly could. But I, I would hazard to guess that that probably wouldn't. Um, that's off make the table it. now. Yeah. yeah. Good.
1: All right. So that's nine. I think our 10th one we wanted to save for, you know, something to celebrate. You know, 30 years ago, November 4th, 1992, President Bush at the time signed into law. You know, the the PHS statute that established the three forty B program. So thirty years of of uh three forty B now, you know, three forty B program continues to grant safety net providers lots of assistance in terms of, you know, stretching those scarce federal resources. Um, you know, it's independent of taxpayer assistance. It's broadly supported by um, you know, with part there's lots of bipartisan support in Washington. Um, you know, really time to celebrate uh, you know, just a a long, successful history of the three forty B program.
2: Yeah, if I can, I you know want to thank the original sponsors of the bill, uh, a senator, uh, uh, senators uh, Orrin Hatch and uh, Henry Waxman, uh, Republican Democrat. I mean, I, I love it because right off the bat it was uh, bipartisan, um, and the intent and for everything that goes into it, and you know even even the original SNAP crew, the pre-340B health crew, helping draft some of that language. I mean, so much good support that went into this, and here we are, 30 years later. And hospitals and covered, um, and, and grantees have, been all been, have all been able to take some of those savings and really impact patient care. I know there's a lot of stuff like the New York Times article uh, pointing fingers that, hey, it really doesn't do that. But, uh, you know, just from our perspective, since we get to see hospitals and clinics on, on a daily basis, um, they are providing excellent care to patients, improving care, expanding services, providing charity care where patients wouldn't have been able to afford their medication. So the program does, in fact, do some, do a lot of good for patient care um, and and our country, if, even saving healthcare dollars. Um, and and I just want to make sure we're. we're we're putting that out there because there is so much negative press sometimes that it feels like, oh, my gosh, is the program going to make it? But we need the program to make it because it is the safety net for our healthcare, especially in rural communities, underserved populations. And I can't thank everybody who was involved with creating it and maintaining it. And um, and for the covered entities are doing the best they can to to keep it alive and do the right thing with the program. So I'd like to thank everybody for that.
1: Great. All right. Well, that's our top 10 for 2022. Hope we get a chance to do this again next year. Um, As we close out, Rob, any final words for our audience members before we sign off for
2: the year? Absolutely. First of all, Matt, Greg, thank you um, for all your guys' help this, with this podcast. I, I, I know it takes takes a village. Uh, we should point out our marketing team, Aiden, who's who, Aiden and Kylie, who's been on these these. You don't hear about Aiden and Kylie, but they're here helping set these up and getting recordings over to Matt and and doing some of the marketing that you see. So just thank everybody there. Thank you all who listen. Um, We wouldn't keep doing it if we didn't have any listeners, but I was just at ASHP uh, this week and uh, people stopped by and said, hey, I listened to your podcast. It's fantastic. Thank you for saying that. That gives us the motivation to continue and come up with the best topics we can. And so for 2023, we have some good topics already lined up through, I think, April, um, but we can always change it up if, if some key things happen in the 340B space. And that's what we love to do if there's there's critical things that, that we should talk about. We do, um, but if you want to be on the podcast or if you have a great topic, please send it in. Um, someone had a great recommendation and we added it to the list. Um, I did ask if that person wanted to join. Like, no, 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 I like listening. I, I don't want to be on the podcast, but we do like to have um, covered entities on the podcast as well from time to time. So if you're interested, hop on. Uh, we'll definitely do that. And in the meantime, you know, this 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 podcast is our only podcast for December. We are going to take the rest of December off for the holidays. And we sincerely hope you do as well. Um, enjoy time with friends and family. Um, and then we look forward to seeing you in the new year. Our first podcast will come out on January 16th. Um, we do still have pl- uh, two planned for January. And um, I-, I can't remember off the top of my head what that topic is, but, uh, but I can tell you that uh, we've got a good list uh, for the beginning of the year. And, and, um, and again, thank you for listening. And, and we hope to hear you and, and engage with you in 2023. Great. All right. Thanks,
1: everyone. We'll talk to you soon. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.